0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, April 16th, 2021. I am John Pod the editor of Commentary Magazine, the 75-year-old monthly of intellectual analysis, political probity, and cultural criticism. From a conservative perspective, we have our May issue up. Uh, online today we do not have it up yet it's not up yet
1: no you are you're up and megs are is up okay
0: so uh my lead article uh the arabic government is back is up and jim meg's article the infrastructure bill is not about infrastructure they're up the rest of the issue will be up presently um and uh that uh panicked reaction came from executive editor abe greenwald hi abe i'm here and i'm ready to panic okay (laughs) john that's good because you know that's uh, that, that's uh, I'm about to talk about panic uh, in a minute. Uh, returning after a week's vacation in sunny Florida uh, and not dead from COVID as a result of being in Florida. Uh, Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. How is sunny Florida?
2: It's amazing. It's wonderful. It's people are living their lives as if you know life could go on. It's yes, kind of uh, great.
0: <laughs> And and in New Jersey, epicenter of COVID, we we have uh, associate editor Noah Rothman. I don't know, it, is it the epicenter or is Michigan the epicenter? It's like close, right? They're like they're like neck no. and neck. No, no, oh. no,
3: not at all. Michigan's way out there. Okay. New Jersey and New York are in the, the case rates are receding at this okay. point. But they were never especially high, right? Um, con- compared to the to the winter surge, but anyway, hi John.
0: Hi, hi Noah. <laughs> um, so let's talk about panic, um, because um, you know there are these journalists who sort of represent conventional opinion in its most distilled form. Um, one of those journalists, at least in, in, in economics, is uh, Felix Salmon, uh, who has basically had a job everywhere over the last ten years, and is one of these guys who rode the uh, bubble of uh, of the content uh, boom of the of the twenty tens, going from place to place internet businesses uh getting increasingly mammoth salaries until it all sort of collapsed. Now he's at Axios and he has a piece today that says basically inflation is coming. Inflation will rise. Don't panic, which leads me to believe that it now as as the pencil says, as the pencil monster says in Monsters Inc., now is the time to panic. Uh, because when when people like this, who obviously like Joe Biden and, and are happy with the policy changes are going, go, yeah, well, you know, costs for raw materials that go into the construction of a house have risen 11% just in the last couple of months. But don't panic. Um, consumer prices are, uh, are are rising like crazy, but don't panic. Gas has gone up 10%. Uh, The price of rent uh, is expected to go up 10%. But don't panic. Don't panic. Uh, You know, maybe it's time to panic. I'm the only one of the people on this podcast who lived through inflation, lived through the period of hyperinflation in the 1970s. Um, And uh, like crime, it's hard to explain how central the fact of inflation was in everyone's daily life. I mean, if you if you were to go back on one of those bizarre channels that's like at around 300 on your cable dial and watch sitcoms from the 1970s that seem to run there on 24-hour loops that you barely remember the name of, like One Day at a Time or something like that, you will notice that many of the jokes involving people coming home with groceries in their arms are how much the groceries cost this week compared to last. And that's what it was like. And it's not just gas. It's not just raw materials basket of commodities all that stuff uh and of course this inflation is being fueled by what by easy money by by enormous amounts of government spending uh and by the fact that we now have a, a a resource race uh going on because uh because the economy may be in danger of overheating faster than we think job job growth is uh, is fantastic retail sales have surged This is where it comes from, and when inflation starts, uh, it's like a boulder rolling down a hill because it starts infecting everything, and it's very hard for it to, you know, it doesn't slow down in one area and increase in another. So I was was relatively sanguine about this, even though we've been warning about it until I read Felix Salmon this morning. (laughs) uh trying to you know whistle past the graveyard and now i think maybe it is a graveyard.
2: Well look at look at the way that the Biden administration is talking about inflation. They never just say inflation. They say measured inflation. They use words like oh maybe inflation but it'll be transitory inflation. So they're already trying to get ahead of the 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 concern that the american public will have if it doesn't actually prove to be transitory which it might not.
3: Well that's actually a little reassuring because it just suggests they're at least aware of the political catastrophe that would befall their administration and the country generally in the event of really significant inflationary pressure, um, you know, the, unfortunately, we're in a post-conservative period on the on the right. But anybody who still remembers having read Hayek should be pretty aware of the the terrors that are unleashed by inflation, which aren't economic but psychological, because when the money in your wallet stops having the same value that it had a week ago. Um, you're prone to a whole lot of paranoia and instability and fear. And that manifests in some pretty unpredictable and and dangerous ways politically. And like we've said before on this podcast, we're in a period now where there's people aren't really tethered to facts or there's a whole, you know, disparate siloed information streams that cater to paranoia and conspiratorial thinking. And in an an event in which, you know, you have a, a significant inflationary, uh, pressure on on your finances, you know, that would only get worse. And the political consequences are hard to imagine. None of them good.
1: Um, well, the, oh, go ahead. I, I think the, the, the take the don't panic take is interesting. And I'm, I'm just thinking um, if, and when uh, the inflation uh, really starts to kick in, we can probably look forward to um, takes on inflation, the likes of which we've never seen before, um, because it's going to be things like, you um, Inflation exposes the inequity uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, look who's getting hit hardest. Or it will be um, at a time when, you know, uh, uh, black bodies are uh, daily um, in danger. Um, you're, you're worried about uh, 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 wealthy consumers are worried about things that, that they can no longer uh, get in uh, such great quantities, things of that nature. Oh, look the problem with inflation
0: is that it, it it resists that kind of narrative um it really does because it is um it's a regressive tax among other things like it actually hits the poorer harder than the richer so therefore the idea of saying take. You know, that's the same take though right well no but, minorities women but yes by inflation but that's it's true, true. <laughs> that's true and it's a real thing as opposed to some of the fake things that are talked about in relation to black bodies The other problem with it is that it resists spin um, because it is not like, it's not exactly arguable. I mean, there are times when inflation is understated as a macro thing because the way the government measures it doesn't properly or adequately measure it correctly. This has been a long argument about whether or not we're using old measures of inflation and that don't count in a lot of things that actually make it bigger than it is but the simple fact of the matter is that when it hits and if it hits uh you can't spin it away like it's not everybody feels it it's not even psychological precisely it's practical um you know the only real experience we have with inflation in some ways over the last 20 25 years is gas prices which of course bounce really violently It's not that they go up and then they go. It's not that they don't go down after they go up. They can often go down and up, you know, twice or three times in the same month, depending on some service interruption or some futures contract or whatever that that changes the price, you know, on on a on a given basis. We're talking here about a point at which gas prices will go up ten percent, and then they'll go up two percent, and then they'll go up three percent, and then they'll go up two percent again. They're not. They don't then turn around. And go down because the competition for resources is too great. So it's not just gas, though. It is The classic thing is supermarkets. It is you, or whatever, you know, you go and you buy your stuff. And a week later, uh, you're spending $25 more than you did the previous week. And you can't miss it you know, maybe you can miss it a little because people use credit card. They always use cash before. And so it was very much a thing that you felt and all of this. But the classic political response in the 1970s wasn't to ignore it or to talk it down. It couldn't be ignored. It was to say, we're going to beat it. We're going to beat this thing. Whip inflation now. Uh, Gerald Ford had buttons printed up that said, W-I-N, whip inflation now. There were inflation czars. There was this, there there's that. And of course, there was no way to beat inflation because it was built into the uh, it was built into the changes in the both the world economy and the American economy. The only way that it was beaten finally was through an almost imposed recession. Yeah, that, uh, no, that is the that is yes. the way
3: you beat it. And it's extraordinarily painful and there's only one way to do it. Um Jeff Sachs, who has become something of an embarrassment now politically. Always was, was actually, but go ahead. Well, now he did a very he did a a profound service to the world by um, imposing on a lot of these economies that were suffering from profound inflation um, shock therapy, and shock therapy is exactly what it sounds like. It is a dunk in an ice water bath, and it's extremely painful. And governments that embrace it uh, suffer political consequences as a result because it it imposes on the publics that they govern real hardships, and uh, you know the kind of. uh, the kind of pressures that make the money in your wallet literally worthless for a time. And eventually it goes away because your economy recovers rather quickly. But that recession is something you have to endure. There is no way around it. And that's the sort of thing that you can't even imagine governments dealing with today because it's always the quick fix. It's always the the soft landing space. Nobody has any stomach for that kind of hardship.
0: Well, Jay Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve, claims that uh, yes, inflation is—we're the going to see a rise in inflation. Um, that's an inevitable consequence of, a, of, an, of, of, of an economic boom, according to him, and uh, and so they will. The Fed will try to deal with it as 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 best it, as best it can. Um, my point here is that um, once again, Biden and the interests of the people who like Biden. Uh, are not going to be well served by an effort to whistle past this graveyard it it won't work it cannot work i mean you can claim at, at times of certain types of economic change that yeah you can talk it down or you can you know be cheerful about things or whatever optimism helps and all of that um, and some of that is some of that is true. But the idea of saying, well, it's not fair for Biden to be tagged with this. He didn't create the coronavirus. He didn't create the need for stimulus. He didn't create, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's all well and good. He's the president. I was struck by something. Uh, if you sort of think about the, the news of the last week. Um, Biden uh, wins in November, but of course, the months between November and January are dominated by Trump's behavior. Right. It's all Trump is he's not resisting the election that building up to January 6th. The aftermath, a second impeachment, Biden's sworn in. There's still an overhang about Trump. Right. There's still sort of like what's going on with the Republicans, the Republicans. What are they doing? Are they going to go away from him? What's he going to do? He's not on Twitter. Is he going to do this? He's going to do that. We're now up to close to 100 days. We're like we're like 10 or 12 days away from the 100 days. And Biden is now all the news. Trump's gone. I mean, he's he's not one hundred percent gone. He's mostly gone. The Republicans are kind of mostly gone, except you know, in freakish ways because of Matt Gates and stuff like that. This is now Biden's country. This is now the Democrats' territory. Everything that's going on is involves what he's saying about Afghanistan, what he's saying about the infrastructure bill, what he's saying about you know uh, George Floyd, whatever it is this is now their country. They have control of the House, the Senate, and the White House. They are the newsmakers. And everything that happens, good or bad,
2: is going to be about him and them from now on. And they haven't quite factored that in yet. But the news, there's another element here, though, which is the news shapers, the me- the media itself has also, uh, I've noticed, I-, I tried to take a bit of a news diet last week, but one thing I did notice is that there's there's a lot of uh, eagerness on the part of the media to, to focus on his extremely high Biden's extremely high approval numbers. You know, look at 60 percent. It's amazing. Incredible. Except on particular issues. Right now, that's the border and immigration. Right. People are not happy with how his administration is handling the border. And the argument that he's he's you know taken on a problem that Trump created doesn't hold water at all, as most people who follow this issue know. So there's that issue. If you add to that an inflation problem, you start to get a sense that there's going to be a lot of bombardment of positive news about Biden from the media. But people will be experiencing in their everyday lives something that doesn't comport with what the media is telling them they should feel. And so I think that, that we're going to see more of that if the media doesn't stop doing its cheerleading. I wish the maybe the 100 days can be their cutoff point and they can start actually critically covering this administration. Uh, but as we saw with Afghanistan, you know, the side by side comparisons of how the media covered Trump's announcement of with, withdrawal of troops versus Biden. Biden's announcement of withdrawal of troops shows that they're, they're in no mood to do that, unfortunately.
0: I think this is a very important point. I think I'm, I'm I'm mostly struck by the fact that his numbers are being ballasted, and appropriately, I guess, by his really high numbers on approval on how he is handling the virus. Um, yeah, if you then go issue to issue, if you assume these these polls do seem to be tilted in his favor the economy numbers he's close to 50-50 and then a lot of other things uh, a lot of other things. I mean there isn't that there isn't that much else but you know on the border I think it's 3752 approval to disapproval uh, some other stuff like uh, his numbers are great by the way we should we should stipulate that even if you dig into them uh you know trump at this moment at this point was at 39% approval in aggregate he's at like 52% approval in aggregate um it's been a long time since a president was solidly over 50% obama never was in his second term trump wasn't um it's not something to sniff at like this is what he you'd want uh, this is you know means that pretty much everybody who voted for him is happy with their vote Let's say, which is a significant fact. Um, so I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to run it down. I just mean that, yeah, there are weaknesses inside the, the positives and the simple. Well, yeah. here's
3: here's one way to look at it, which I think is more helpful. His approval ratings in the last few polls are the following: fifty-two percent, fifty percent, forty-eight percent, fifty-three percent, fifty-one percent. They're not especially fantastic. No, he had fifty-nine percent really yesterday. For What's really good for him is his disapproval numbers, which are profoundly low, 41%, 39%, 37%. It's not so much that everybody loves the guy, but the people who are inclined towards skepticism are withholding judgment.
0: Or what they like about him is why he got elected, which is the important thing, which is that he said he was going to turn the temperature down. He said he wasn't going to be in your face they said he wasn't going to be on Twitter, and indeed he isn't. He isn't in your face. He's not everywhere at all times. He can't. You know, he resists the news cycle, and uh, and and he is getting rewarded for that. Now, uh, that doesn't. Yeah, but mean, it's the looming yeah.
2: problems of this country, including right. crime, border. As those things are more in the face of Americans, I think that matters. Right. Will start to matter less, to right? You know. Precisely right.
3: because job approval being high would be more stable than his disapproval being low. There's more room to grow right on the disapproval side
0: right well i think the other the other key point is as you say like uh issue by issue that's where uh the behavior conduct and ideas of the media are going to are have can have a blinding effect on him and confuse the way people understand this because uh where things are ideological in the media are not just partisan support for biden it is uh that we think about crime or the way they talk about crime is entirely related to these uh you know to to individual incidents involving uh you know potential police misconduct you know, one in chicago you know one in brooklyn center uh minnesota you know uh, that and the other thing meanwhile uh in i think across 10 cities the violent crime rate is up 20% Uh, over a year and that's of course in a year in which nobody a lot of people weren't out on the streets and in these places and stuff like that so um uh you don't know that because people aren't like screen you know the media aren't screaming it from the rooftops uh but this is one of those things that you can't not know it's a little like uh (laughs) it's a little like inflation uh yeah, because uh, the very wealthy—this uh, wasn't really true during the crime wave of the '60s, '70s, and '80s and '90s—but the very wealthy can shield themselves from the consequences of crime. Or the very upper middle class—they live in certain kinds of areas. They—they—they they, they shield themselves. They're barricaded. All of that. So it's not. But and and this is where the media are, and where the where often where um where the uh, academy, where people in the academy live, and so they can be shielded from crime at some point. That. The, those barriers no longer uh, exist as they really didn't exist in the, in the old days. And crime was everywhere and burglaries, for example, were, you know, burglaries are uniquely remain uniquely a bizarre thing where poor people are burglar more than rich people. Cause it's, I guess it's easier, but that doesn't, you know, but if burglary becomes something that you can do, that's fine. So you'll go. And then, Oh, uh, one thing we should mention in this regard is of course the prosecutors, uh, uh, the Progressive Prosecutors have been talking about for a year, and Andy McCarthy wrote his piece, The Progressive Prosecutor Project. Christine wrote her piece about um, about the rise of crime in uh, February. Uh, Chesa Boudin, the uh, DA of San Francisco, uh, 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 released a, uh, a a man uh, who beat up a 70-year-old woman on the streets of uh, San Francisco did not prosecute him for the for uh, an Asian, uh, did not prosecute him for a hate crime against an Asian in San Francisco on the grounds that uh, he was just having a temper tantrum. And there are pictures of this. And this is a guy
2: yeah. who had a previous, I believe a previous charge for uh, carrying a weapon. Um, yeah. he, he's not you know a model citizen. He, he has a yeah. rap sheet yeah. already.
0: Right, because we do have now this bizarre class of prosecutors in the United States who want who uh who believe their job is not to prosecute crimes and they are they are dominating figures in 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 all kinds of places in philadelphia in particular but now san francisco uh races all over the country um and um and so uh they, wait, they are also, I, yeah, go ahead.
2: I just want to correct one thing. It's not that they don't believe in prosecuting crimes, it's that they don't believe in prosecuting certain kinds of perpetrators, right. uh, either because of their race or their socioeconomic status, but largely because of their race. So if this had been a white supremacist who had attacked an elderly Asian woman, you better believe he probably would have been prosecuted. But there have been multiple examples of people. Being given this kind of equity, there's kind of an equity privilege here where it's like, well, there's too many black men in jail. So when black men commit assault against an elderly woman, we've got to let that guy go free for this broader purpose of equity. But again, that that, the the, the principle of equity is one thing, but on the ground, people are literally getting killed. There was a, a previous example in San Francisco where a man was killed. He was shoved and he died from head injuries. So this is something that this is where equity meets reality i think and people are going to start to see more of this when more of these prosecutors right. win unfortunately right.
0: i mean I, i'll tell you a quick story from my own life uh, as a kid uh because it, it 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 has weird resonances uh with the with the present moment um uh something you can't imagine now so when i was 11 12 years old uh on the upper west side of manhattan uh a guy was going around um castrating uh little uh hispanic boys seven eight nine years old uh in the in the uh classic a uh, horrible way in which people refer to these things at the time he came to be known as charlie chop off and he was uh there were six incidents uh on the upper on the upper west side near my near my house when i was growing up uh within blocks of my house uh uh, this was a horrible crime because it was, in the in the context of the time, very hard to write about in the pages of newspapers because you weren't allowed to mention penises. You weren't allowed to mention, you know, so, so everything had to be very um, suggestive. Uh, but – and now you would think, oh, my God, not only was this a crime against children, a sex crime against children that would dominate the news everywhere forever – if this were happening now, but there were two qualities about it. One of which was that it was incidents involving um, young, young Hispanic boys, which then um, meant that you wanted to treat it gingerly because you didn't want to look like you were picking on them. Uh, and then also the, the, the descriptions and the, the, when the boys described the, the, the person who had done this to them, he was clearly some kind of person of color black hispanic something like that there were sketches of him and all of this guess how many stories there were in the new york times about charlie chopoff three in the space of 16 months it, this was not an insignificant crime a a special task force was created in the 24th precinct that had 50 people working full time on the case uh The New York Post had not yet become the sort of the dynamic. uh, It was a very sleepy, very dead paper. Uh, The Daily News wasn't interested in Manhattan because it was an outer borough paper. There was almost no press coverage of this thing. Now, why do I bring this up? Because this was one of those moments when everybody in, in my neighborhood was in a state of hysteria about this. And if you went 30 blocks or 40 blocks somewhere else, they didn't know about it. And, uh, you know, when you want to ask, how was it that New York, this very liberal city, ended up taking a kind of bizarre conservative turn in the 1970s with Ed Koch, who was about as right-wing a person as you could get running and winning for mayor and all of that, and running pretty much as a neocon uh, Democrat for the next 12 years. This is how, because the grassroot feeling in the city was everything was getting away from it. And they knew people knew it because they knew it. They didn't, and they weren't told it by the media. The media wasn't, wasn't conveying it properly or adequately. Uh, Son of Sam, that stuff was later, but uh, the notion that the city was, you know, had was turning into sort of like the, the seventh circle of hell was being experienced by people on the ground. So Chesa Boudin cannot prosecute this guy that itself is going to be an, a political issue. I mean that you know these the this the, the response behavior becomes the political issue in a very real way. And that's something that the Biden it's very hard for you to like say okay, well, you know, we're having a honeymoon now, but we better uh, hunker down and like get our arguments straight because, you know, we're we're about to reap the whirlwind. I don't think they know that. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't I don't know them well. Do you get a sense that they know uh they know that they're heading into choppy
2: waters. But uh, not if you look at the people who he's nominating to important positions in like the Department of Justice, for example. They have no qualms about, you know, defending their their in their previous I'm thinking of Kristen Clark here. She defended the fact that she refused to prosecute, uh, you know, the Black Panthers who were intimidating voters, you know, other other examples where. Uh, again, if the races were different, there would be an outcry about not prosecuting the behavior because it's the behavior that matters, right? If you're intimidating voters with a billy club and threats, it doesn't really matter what color you are. Now, she says it does matter. And I think there's a lot of people in lower level positions in the Biden administration, particularly with regard to crime and justice issues that believe that that's okay, that they are are repairing uh, a history of, as they often say, white supremacy, and that that'll take letting a lot of you know people who beat up elderly uh, ladies on the street f- go free again for the principle of equity for the principle of racial justice that is where and that's why i think you see a lot of the media coverage reflect that idea you see playing down of of Crimes, you know, has anyone talked at all about the guy who killed a Capitol Hill police officer here in DC recently? No, that disappeared. That story disappeared because it didn't fit that equity narrative, right? And this is an African American guy with clearly a lot of, you know, problems um, and a Nation of Islam follower. Nobody wants to talk about that. That doesn't suit this narrative. So I do feel like. You know, conservatives say this a lot about the media narrative, but it's now, I think, reflected in some of the people who have positions of power in this administration. So we'll see how they what they do with that. Let's talk
0: a little about the media and Kristen Clark uh, just briefly because something had occurred to me. So she's the nominee at the Justice Department to run the Civil Rights Division. and uh, the our friends at the Free Weekend. Uh, dug up a piece that she wrote in 1994 uh, uh, for the Harvard Crimson attacking uh, Charles Murray and Richard Herrnstein's The Bell Curve um, in which she said, I mean, I can't remember quite the details, but she kind of made a black supremacist case uh, that uh, not only were blacks not genetically inferior, they were genetically superior and she then invited this black supremacist to campus and there was a whole controversy about it and so this piece comes up, and John Corn in the Senate Republican Senator from Texas asks her about it, and she says, "Oh, it's it was a parody, you know. This was a parody." And I had this thought that she was being like the the proprietor of the pet shop uh, in the dead parrot sketch, uh, uh, Monty Python's dead parrot sketch, where you know. Guy comes in and says, the parrot is dead. Or you know, John Cleese comes in and says, the parrot is dead. And he's like, he's not dead. He's only sleeping. And then it's like, he's not sleeping. And he bangs. And, I, and it's like, you know, I'm not from here. I'm from, I'm from uh, you know, it's like, he sends him to another pet shop. And then he's like, uh, you know, wasn't this, uh, I was told to come here in Bolton. And it's like, no, no, you were told a to palindrome. And he said, it's not a palindrome. Palindrome of Bolton is not love. Not that, you know, it's like. Of course it's not a parody. It wasn't a parody. No one thought it was a parody at the time. This is just gaslighting. And then you go on Twitter and stuff like that, and major reporters are like, oh, she really owned John Cornyn because he didn't understand that her piece, which wasn't a parody, was a parody. This is the sort of thing that if things were more normal would have been
2: the end of her nomination, her well, attempt and it to also- play this card. If this is the standard, then that's going to come back to to bite on the other side when a QAnon supporter can make the same claim. I was just joking around. I didn't really believe that. I was just, you know, it was all parody. Uh, it, no, she she was dishonest. I mean, I think you can pretty frankly say, especially given her behavior after that piece was written, she invited known black supremacists and known anti Semites to campus, um, and in you know and defended that. She also defended the anti Semitism of the of the women's march. So she is very clearly on the record as an adult, not a college student, uh, being pretty eager to defend those views. So I and not and not really recanting them now. So right. I think she was deliberately misleading. If not lying outright, so guys,
0: um, our friend Dan Senor and that podcast of his I've been telling you about, Post Corona, uh, the great uh, a weekly effort to kind of describe and get a sense of where America and the world are and are going to be as we move out of the out of the uh, crisis of of the virus. Uh, Dan, uh, you get it at uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts post-corona, has a great new episode going up today with Josh Rogan, a reporter at the Washington Post, uh, who has just published a book about uh, uh, China and the challenge from China and the challenge from China in part relating to the coronavirus. Uh, uh, Dan and and Josh Rogan uh, talk about how China responded to the virus, what we can learn about them from their response and what the challenge is from them going forward, and how we need to react to them in the wake of very serious questions about what role the government played and what role the circumstances of Chinese communism played in the uh, promulgation of the virus. Uh, This follows a podcast from this, the one that's up before you get this one, which features me, I got to tell you. It's me talking about the future of cinema in the wake of the uh, pandemic. And I got to say, we recorded it uh, on a Friday, on a Thursday last week. Uh, and then right after we recorded it, and I, I suggested that I thought that movie theaters were going the way of the dodo. Uh, the most important theater chain in Los Angeles, uh, ArcLight, uh, announced that it was closing its doors forever. These are sort of high-end, high-quality theaters that um, are the place you want to go see. You have wanted to go see a movie in Los Angeles if you could, if the if if the, the, it was the most convenient place because these are beautiful theaters, extremely well kept good concessions, uh, you know, tasteful tasteful choices for what they show. And they they said they could no longer sustain the model. There was no way for them to stay in business. They couldn't see a way forward. Uh, so I felt pretty prophetic. Uh, if you go want to go listen to it, you can hear my prophecy come true in real time. Uh, but uh, so that's good uh, for me and also for you. If you want to know why this is happening, and Josh Rogan today talking about China with Dan Sinor on the Post Corona podcast, go subscribe today apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, stitcher wherever you get podcasts and we thank dan for sponsoring the commentary magazine podcast okay ah um another thing that happened uh in the world of suppression of of of, of uh of the sorts of things that people need to know about comes a, a, a extraordinarily disturbing piece of news from the world of book publishing. not that news hasn't been disturbing for a while. cancellations of book contracts because people complain and in, complain inside publishing uh, companies about uh, how uh, about whether or not these books should be published, which of course is really upsetting in a world in which free uh, the world of uh, publishing is supposed to be a world uh, dedicated to free expression, but now it's more dedicated to wokeness. Uh, Simon and so small publishing houses in the United States. A lot of a lot of them conservative uh, can exist because they publish books, but they do not then have they they're not full service uh, and they don't have distribution arms, which means you know the the books are printed at printing presses and then they need to be shipped to bookstores and you know uh, across the country. Uh, and that's a very expensive infrastructure to have. And so these bookstore, these booksellers, conservative, Christian, whatever, and others, contract out to major publishers, in this case, Simon & Schuster, to distribute their books. They get them printed, but they're shipped out, and then they obviously pay a, a big fee. Uh, this is a business for Simon & Schuster. So uh, Post Hill Books, uh, which publishes out of Tennessee, um, uh, had a book come? Had a book that was coming out uh, by one of the officers involved in the Breonna Taylor shooting in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, and apparently, within Simon and Schuster, uh, there was a, a protest against the fact that Simon Schuster was going to be distributing this book. Remember, it didn't publish it; it's not selling it. Nothing. It is a transshipment system that is being borrowed. You know, essentially, or being rented, you know, whatever, how, you know, paying them a fee simply to ship the book from a printing plant to a bookstore. That's it. And Simon Schuster announced last night that it was canceling; it would not distribute the Brianna Taylor book. This is terrifying beyond words for anybody in the country who believes in free expression, because it's one thing to say, we're publishing a book, the book came in and it does not meet our standards and it makes us sick and we can't be responsible. We're not going to set it in type. We're not going to, we're not going to take 50% of the profits. We're not going to pay the royalty to the writer. We're just not going to do this. That's one thing which you can complain about, but as contract is part of the contract, it's how it works. You know, that they can, they don't have to publish any book that they don't want to publish. They are not responsible for this book. They are not the seller, they are not the buyer, they are not the printer, they are not anything. They are the shipping department. And they are refusing to ship a book that made people at their company angry because it involved somebody expressing an opinion that they apparently don't like. Um this is this is uh a, another breach this is another like another brick in the wall that's being destroyed uh and we are you know i guess you you know bricks in the wall are usually built but i'm talking about how uh, whatever we are we are moving into territory in which an impregnable ability to suppress information is uh, is coming on all sides right Twitter announces uh, Twitter and Facebook. Facebook decides it's not going to let you read the story about how the head of Black Lives Matter in LA bought a house. So it, 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 that, the, that story has been delisted or deplatformed from Facebook. We don't know why. The claim, post, fact, post facto, ex post facto claim, is that it showed a how, picture of a house and they don't let you do that on the front page of the New York Post, which sounds like a lot of crap to me. They didn't do it because they have decided that they're putting their finger on the scale pro-Black Lives Matter. That doesn't mean the theme. So it's one thing to say you want to support the theme Black Lives Matter, right, the phrase. It's another to say that that then means that the people who run an organization called Black Lives Matter that collects, I believe the number was $90 million in in, in, in 2020, that the people who work at that organization and are getting enriched by that organization are therefore must be shielded from criticism because otherwise you're going to destroy the important
1: work and message of Black Lives Matter. So there's a point that Noah's made uh, several times in the past when we've discussed various books that won't be sold, um, that Amazon has refused to sell and and whatnot. Um, And Noah's point is that... um, for a lot of these authors, this ends up translating into higher sales because uh, it's publicity for the book, it rallies people to the cause, and then you can, of course, find the book elsewhere on, on uh, at other outlets. I think this is true uh, to a degree, but there's a secondary problem here, which is that every time this happens, and it's, it's, it's a big problem for the country, every time something like this happens... Um, and then you drive people who are sympathetic to the cause over to these alternate outlets or alternate platforms, um, it further splits the entire society, right? So if we just have these um, siloed channels of culture and information, um, you know, we could, we could get to the point where uh, large scale mainstream booksellers and other platforms. Simply don't publish anything um, that is uh, has uh, the, 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 uh, any sort of whiff of um, dissent from prevailing sociological uh, ideologies or any defenses of any type of conservative thought or anything and sure and maybe these these books then go on to um, uh, be very profitable in the in these uh, alternate uh, marketplaces but then you have a completely bifurcated country.
3: Well, there's already
1: ghettoing in the publication industry when it comes
3: to particularly conservative publications. These houses have imprints that are dedicated to conservative books and then a broader array of offerings that are not conservative, which are generally everything else. Um, what makes this a little different is that it, this isn't being uh, siloed in a conservative imprint and dedicated to a conservative audience and chasing conservative dollars. Um, it's just been anathematized as, as something that you're not supposed to see. Um, and that's what makes this probably an ex- a, a expansion of the, the rules of engagement.
0: Well, the other way of looking at it is, you think this is where it ends with this book? Okay, so we're now in a position where the book is going to have very, very great difficulty being distributed to bookstores. When, no, you made the case that, you know, Amazon banning something meant that it might have success. That meant that if you weren't going to be able to get it on Amazon, you could get it at a bookstore. You think it ends here? You think Amazon is going to put this book on Kindle? Amazon is going to sell it? Amazon's, then it's dead. Then it literally has been, this is the suppression of that volume because you're going to start from the distributor not distributing it to the number one book marketer in the country not selling it. To Barnes and Noble not being able to get it. It is, it is, uh, being um, excommunicated. It is. Well, I think yeah.
2: every, every time, like an Andy No book or Jesse Singles book, anytime a, a controversial book is sort of announced that, you know, a ban, uh, they did get that initial popularity. But it also signaled to the people who don't want to allow that kind of book to be in the public's hands all the weak points along the chain, the production chain, that they could still pinch, right? And so this is another example of that. So that I think it's it's remarkable to me that unless, so just like Fox news kind of was created as a response to the fact that what was considered mainstream nonpartisan, you know, CNN style news wasn't that at all, unless you build a distinct and separate infrastructure, haha, there's that word. um, It's, it's going to be impossible to get your book out there. And I do think it's not just the, you know, woke staffers at the Simon & Schuster editorial offices in New York city, right? It's, at every point, why not why not go to the people who run the press and find out who their other clients are, the presses, the literal printing press, and say, well, you know, all of your other clients agree that this is not the kind of book that the Americans need to be reading. It's inflammatory, it's racist, it's whatever it is. That is pressure. And this comes at a time when a lot of America's business leaders have suddenly decided that they are actually politicians and they need to start you know, talking about public policy matters, not just business matters. So woke capitalism, all this stuff, this is all happening at the same time and it feeds into each other.
0: Right. Well, the, you know, the classic thing that people have said is... Uh... Look, Hollywood's about money. It wants to make money. So if you have a right-wing movie, you, they'll make it if they can make money. Well, first of all, no one knows what's going to make money or not make money, number one. Number two, uh, that may be theoretically correct, but it's not like after The Passion of the Christ came out and made $675 million, uh, suddenly there was, you know, um, the story of Esther and, uh, and uh, I don't know, I mean, you know, and, the, uh, and Barabbas and... Uh, you know, Paul on the Road to Damascus, starring Jim Caviezel. Like, yeah, supposedly these things breed an audience, and therefore the audience is going to get served. Except, I notice a that doesn't happen a lot of the time because they go decide, well, that's a fluke, it's a one off, and whatever. And I we still and because they don't want to do it, and that actually does affect the way people work. They don't want to publish right wing books, but after a while, they were like, my God, I mean, we can't turn our eyes away from this market, and now it's. We have to turn our eyes away from this market. The future of the country is at stake. These people stormed the Capitol. You know, it's like there's, there's going to be this whole thing where everything is the same as everything else. So you can't publish the Breonna Taylor book because these people stormed the Capitol. And they tried to overthrow the country and install a fascist dictatorship. So it's okay, you know, again, not to constantly quote pop culture, but it's like the moment at the end of the Blues Brothers when the... When the dispatcher in chicago says excessive use of force against the blues brothers has been approved excessive use of force against books and people who 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 contradict the prevailing narrative about black lives matter excessive use of force has been approved and that's what this that's what this uh uh indicates um I don't know what this means for publishing as a big business. It's not really that big a business. Um, it's a shockingly small business. The way uh, s- movie distribution is, um, but uh, maybe over time you're going to learn something about uh, how to make money or lose money or 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 deal with the macroeconomic consequences of this stuff by reading our friends at the Bonson Group and their products, the DCToday.com and DividendCafe.com. Produced under the aegis of David Bonson, a bi-coastal money manager with uh, $2.8 billion under management and a firm uniquely equipped to deal with the interplay of politics, policy, uh, wokeness and wokeness's effect on the markets, what's going on with all these people, what they're doing, and of course, the key issue of our time, I think, coming, inflation, uh, which uh, uh, David Bonson promised in yesterday's... uh, DCToday.com would be one of the subjects of his DividendCafe.com piece this weekend. So, uh, uh, never before uh, has it been more important to understand how culture and politics and policy work together, particularly with an administration that's come in and proven to be a lot more, uh, driven by these cultural questions than we might have anticipated. So, DividendCafe.com, the DCToday.com, the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services industry. Uh, I guess we should close out on yet another uh, media story or not? Uh, maybe less a media story than... That's a media story. Uh, uh, as, as the administration was announcing new sanctions on Russia for its interference in the 2020 election, uh, Jen Psaki, the... Um, White House press secretary acknowledged that uh, the intelligence community had low to medium uh, confidence that reports last summer that Russian, evil Russian intelligence agencies had offered cash bounties for the uh, for the heads the deaths of American soldiers in Afghanistan. That that story they had. low to medium confidence that that story was accurate. Um, And I got to say, uh, I had a, I I need a reality check on this because I remember, look, I know, and the whole question was, Trump knew this because it came out of the intelligence community, and why wasn't he acting? Obviously, he wasn't acting because even though Robert Mueller found no evidence, even though their Senate found no evidence, nobody found the evidence, he's obviously a Russian spy. Trump is a Russian agent, he's a Russian spy, he's you know, soft peddling the Russians' horrible conduct here. None of this made any sense to me because, of course, Trump had imposed sanctions on Russia, pretty stiff ones and severe ones, for behavior that had nothing to do with Americans, largely relating to uh, Crimea and, and, Geor- and Georgia. And so uh, we here was a case in which the Russians would have been killing Americans or would have been paying to have Americans killed. Would Trump turn a blind eye to that when he would when he was worried about the you know interference, uh, you know in in Russia's near abroad? I find that hard to believe, uh, and so I was skeptical of this story from the get go, and now uh, it's apparently not true. And the amount of attention that was slathered on this then was 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 pretty striking. I mean it's a it's a huge media story that basically the media uncritically accepted this one report that said that there was a high degree of confidence. And then we got that thing where then they independently confirm it. You know, NBC News has independently confirmed that there's an intelligence committee report that says that the Russians are paying are paying bounties on American soldiers. Noah, where do you come out on this?
3: Okay, so I have a rather complicated and nuanced take on this. So allow me the runway to spill this out. Um, When this story broke, I wrote about it with two takes. One, we shouldn't know anything about it because it's completely unsubstantiated, leaking it to the extent that it was leaked all but forecloses on the prospect of substantiating it to a degree that it can be proven in a venue like the United Nations, which is what a lot of people were calling for at the time. It was a very profoundly disturbing charge. But it's plausible, and here's why. At the time when this was reported, it was also reported alongside the allegation that Iran was supporting and funding efforts to attack and kill US troops. That has been a substantiated story for decades. And WikiLeaks released this information in February of 2005. Rather, in 2010, we had congressional testimony to the effect that Iran was not only supporting materially but financing operations by the Taliban and also insurgents in Iraq to kill American soldiers. This is not something that is subject to debate. News was that Russia was engaged in this as well, and it's plausible for the following reasons: one. In 2016, we had a more similar testimony from uh, American military brass to the effect that Russia was providing political support for the Taliban. They had been having meetings in Tajikistan. They had been moving assets across the border. Anybody who follows Russian operations in Afghanistan knows the country is very thoroughly penetrated politically as well as militarily. In 2018, um, American military officials, General John Nicholson, testified that Russian support for Taliban insurgents had become material in nature insofar as they were providing weapons and equipment and training to Taliban insurgents in Afghanistan. All of this is not subject to a whole lot of debate. So when the following year we got news that Russia was following the example set by its functional ally in Tehran by supporting materially um, uh, efforts to kill American soldiers in Afghanistan, it was not all that implausible so this, the, the efforts on the part of everybody to with, you know to just sort of fail to, to suspend disbelief here and just embrace it uncritically absolutely had a political component to it. It justified and supported the democratic claim that Donald Trump was somehow this sort of sleeper agent loyal to Moscow. But what we're seeing now is a very similar response from conservatives because that narrative collapsed. And now they're all over the press saying, where's the consequences for people in journalism? Where are the, Who's gonna get fired over this story? And it is just another example of a very same impulse that was on display by the press to try to indict Donald Trump because of a political narrative. Now they're trying to indict the media because of a political narrative. But it's just a proxy war against the press. It has nothing to do with the details of this story. It is therefore another example of why discourse particularly online is not only terrible but detrimental and actively hostile to a fuller understanding of events and a real a nuanced approach to the conduct of international and military affairs which is part of the reason why I hate everything.
0: Uh, boy is that way too nuanced cuz you think that the people who were reporting on this in the summer of 2020 we're functioning on the basis of oh dear. I mean, the Iranians had done this. No, said precisely the opposite. Right. Okay. So why can't? But, why- but so
3: are the right. Literally, no one is behaving in good faith.
0: Why isn't it behaving in good faith to say that this story was was was, was a shocking dereliction of, of of elementary journalistic duty?
3: It wasn't. You did reporting it wasn't reporting it as fact, which was opinion based, which is what happens on cable news, was irresponsible. Reporting it as intelligence leaked to the press on on a basis of very plausible, unsubstantiated but plausible allegations, wasn't irresponsible. We, we don't know the people who are calling for heads in the None press this, are being irresponsible. No,
0: we have no idea what was leaked to the press. We don't know that they no, got we a, don't. We don't know. who... No, we don't.
3: But we do have a substanti- as I just laid out, we have a series of substantiating events which are circumstantial, but nevertheless smell like I don't, smoke.
0: I I I just don't agree. You have no idea what information somebody got from somebody and then and then this all turned into a giant game of telephone in which the press was reporting uncritically on a pretty wild allegation. it is a- but
3: they were also reporting uncritically on a not wild allegation which was Iranian involvement in in, in Afghanistan.
0: I, I, I mean I, I'm actually I, I, I'm actually puzzled by this analysis on your part. The reason that they wanted to say that the Russians were paying bounties on soldiers in Afghanistan was to say that Trump must have known and wasn't doing anything about it. They weren't reporting it because they wanted to report on the Russians doing something in Afghanistan. They don't give a crap about Afghanistan. They don't care about Afghanistan, as we can now see from the joyous reaction to the notion that we're going to leave the Afghanis on their own now. I don't, I mean, I don't buy that for a second. So I think. Neither do I. We're okay. in a
3: furious agreement. I don't understand where your frustration is Because with you're
0: attacking no, the right. The notion,
3: I am attacking the right you're because atta- the right is discounting, discounting yeah. the credible evidence to justify such a claim that would lead you to suspend disbelief and at least say, hmm, maybe we need to investigate this sort of thing. They're calling for heads, not because of this oh, story. I don't care about Because they want to indict the press.
0: I, look, calling for heads or not calling for heads. That's just whatever that is. The point is that the people who said this doesn't pass the smell test were correct. Not that they were wrong and not that they were they were somehow in the service of Trump. Like, I, but they were
3: correct because of a hunch, not because they had substantiating evidence to justify the claim.
0: Uh, yeah, and they're apparently – we don't know that there was any substantiating evidence to justify the claim that the Russians were paying bounties. You're assuming no, that there I was just a laid out.
3: No, but I just laid out the history, a decade long history that suggests that it's perfectly plausible, up to and including material support, according to our generals in the Pentagon, for Taliban activities.
0: Uh, but the two are not this. Just because the Taliban, just because the Russians provide material support, doesn't mean that they are involved in a tabloid heavy, tabloid friendly, you know, sort of story that would make a really great, uh, you know, uh, episode for a you know, uh, for a, a, show about, you know, for some French show about our involvement in Afghanistan.
1: Yeah. I just want to, I, go I, am I'm, I'm more than happy to call for heads in the press over this because not, not only does the, 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 press not care, did they not care about Afghanistan or what was going on? Um, the press didn't care about the Iranians who were, had, have been targeting, uh, Americans for, uh, ages. Um, because what, what is the cause for the, for the greatest celebration in the press is any indication that we are going to give the Iranians cash and, and make peace with them. Um, so the idea that they were outraged over uh, uh, Trump's not uh, uh, responding, you know, uh, doing something um, uh, anti-American here, I think is, is, is totally farcical and garbage. And um, by the way, the narrative about Trump has not died, in the press even with the revelation uh, as the times story on this uh, indicates the, the subhead of the of today's new york times story about the information on the, the new information doubting the russian bounties says the following the available evidence supporting a running C- a stunning cia assessment which president donald j trump's inaction on prompted by bi- bar- bipartisan uproar remains less than definitive proof
3: look, there's nothing I
1: disagree with there.
3: That they're all being irresponsible is something that I can totally sign on to. That doesn't give me license to be irresponsible. The evidence is what it is. And just because they're pursuing a political narrative doesn't give me license to disregard everything I know about the region.
2: Well, and it's so, but in microcosm, I think what what this particular case shows and the argument that we're having right now shows is that the polarization in the media has left it, it is made it almost impossible if you want to understand what factually is going on to do so without a lot of opinion and shaping of narrative and and a disregard of certain facts and an elevation of of other minor things to to suit that narrative, it makes it hard to understand. So I don't follow the region anywhere near as closely as you do, Noah, but to try to figure out who's right, who's wrong, what the history here is, it's actually quite a challenge because there has been so much uh, insistence throughout the Trump years of the media having a role that isn't just reporting, it's shaping and and uh, you know having a, a very vigorous response to what they saw as a threat to democracy. So we're I think there's going to be a lot of hangover effect from those four years in the media for quite some time, and it makes it a challenge for Americans to just get information about the world around them. Look, you know who t- you know who bought the story? Joe Biden.
0: Barack Obama, Kamala Harris, all three of them made reference to the story as if it were fact, as if it were fact. Donald Trump ignored, I mean, let me find the quote from Kamala Harris. He let Putin get away with placing bounties on the heads of our troops, said the now sitting vice president of the United States. So the whole point is one of the reasons you call for heads in a story like this is maybe they were duped. Maybe they were being used by somebody in, you know, in, in the intelligence community or whatever. But um, when, you, when you perpetrate a false narrative, you then get uh, leaders uh, in the country to use your false narrative as though it were fact. And I don't think it had an effect on the election or didn't have an effect on the election, but you now have tens of millions of people. We now have the story. They basically walked it back and as 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 Abe suggests, uh, what I was looking on Twitter yesterday, what I got was Trump's uh, Trump's a Russian agent, not because of this, by the way, but because of the story that uh, I don't know if you know this because you only read it ten thousand times already, but uh, part of the uh, part of the uh, narrative of the uh, Justice Department in in calling for uh, or whoever it was. Uh, call a uh, Commerce Department, Treasury, whatever, calling for uh, sanctions on uh, on Russia uh, because of the interference in the elections had to do with a uh, one Konstantin Kalimnik getting a data, getting polling data, private polling data from Paul Manafort in 2016. Right. So first of all, we heard this already twenty five thousand times. It's not news that that Kalimnik gave that was in. I believe that was in Manafort's trial, actually, So, uh, and certainly was in various other things that were reported, number one. Number two, uh, what does that have to do with, uh, you know, what happened in 2020? And number three, really that's the worst you can come up with is that he gave him polling data? Did he give him like, you know... Data, did he give him private, you know, poll, private polling data? Like, that's it was probably
2: bad polling, data yeah, no anyways, doubt. Right? It may
0: have been good, it may have been bad, but he gave him polling data. I mean, that's like, that's like, what is that? That's not even privileged, you know. Oh
2: my god, this is no eyes only, you better, oh dear god, anyway. Um but i do i, I just want to say one more thing on this on this disagreement uh if it is a disagreement which is i do uh, note to noah's point about how the right wing is starting to fall into the trap of doing the thing it was correctly criticizing the anti-trumpers in the media from doing that is absolutely right and that's actually something we should be extremely cautious about uh embracing as particularly when it when it uh is a, is in support of our priors and i i mean i i struggle with this sometimes when you know when there are issues about crime and race and, and other things that I think and write about, it's really easy to just listen to the side that that tells you what you think you want to hear. And I do think that the, that the right-wing media environment is uh, is at risk of doing something similar. And that would be bad for conservatism, because then we can't actually criticize the things the Biden administration wants to do that are harmful for the country in our opinion.
0: Okay. I do want to say one thing, though, on on this in this regard, which is, Pulitzers were handed out throughout the Trump administration for uh, for promulgating a narrative about Trump and Russia that is not true. Have those has any of the have any of those organizations said they think they should give back the Pulitzer? No, obviously people never do that. But the simple fact of the matter is that nobody, nobody in the press has suffered a second's reputational harm. From the, from the promulgation and distribution of stories about Carter Page and, uh, and uh, George Papadopoulos and others that were manifestly untrue. And these are not Trump. These are like nobodies whose lives and careers and reputations were destroyed before they could even begin to build them. Uh, and even, you know, like in the case of, uh, Papadopoulos ended up serving 14 days in jail, uh, for relatively trumped up reasons. Um, so nobody suffers any reputational harm. And so that, that itself, like there is no self policing. There's none, there's no, there's no, it's like, does Jason Leopold get, do, do any of these people not get new jobs? Uh, hired by other places because they 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 did high-profile stories that turned out not to be true? No. Everybody's in great odor, in great shape. No consequences. And so does that drive people crazy? Yes. By the way, calling for heads is itself, I think, uh, an expression of impotence, not strength. It's like you're calling for heads in part because you know – You ain't going to get any heads. No head is going to roll.
3: Look, it it is. It's possible. It's debatable that there should be professional consequences for this. It's debatable whether sources should be burned. What's frustrating to me is that all of a sudden, everybody knew this story was bunk at the time. Everybody knew that it was nonsense. And you should have known too because they knew. They just knew. They didn't know. They had no idea what they're talking about. They still have no idea what they're talking about. Fair enough. But but they
0: pretend they do. I don't know. Right. It just seems to me like your anger is directed. It's, it's sort of. It's a slightly eccentric way to direct your anger. As, as the day after, the White House press secretary said that the story they had low to medium confidence in the story that no, Biden and no, Obama, wait. that Biden and Obama and Harris all uh, used as a weapon against Trump last year.
3: Not at all, because this is a political filter when this should be viewed as a geostrategic military issue, because we face genuine, real threats from russia materially supporting active combatants against american forces in a theater of war yeah and yes that's something we should be pretty concerned about and when it becomes a political football in the united states it detracts from that mission and that's a little frustrating
0: yeah well i mean you know that's like yeah i know and the and 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 the sun rises in the morning and sets in the evening i mean i i don't know what to say like you're 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 expressing out it's like expressing outrage at uh you know, uh, I don't know what. I mean. It's like, yeah, you're right, but so what? I mean, that's that's life. That's life. The, the The question is whether, if you do it and you get caught, or or the or the story is wrong, whether anybody has any regrets. <laughs> Biden have any regrets that he said that Trump was ignoring the fact that Putin was having Americans assassinated? Does he regret that? does harris regret it no because they probably still either they still believe it or they don't care or it's like trump deserves whatever he gets because he'll say whatever he wants there are no regrets fine so that's life i mean and that's you know politics ain't beanbag but uh i'm not i'm not outraged uh that people uh are outraged by that fact
2: we should close with edith piaf music for this episode Uh, right (laughs) okay guys uh have a
0: fantastic weekend we've again kept you too long uh, so I apologize if you've gotten to this point. Thank you so much for your forbearance. For Abe, No, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.